hey everybody, welcome to Grace Life. Would you put your hands together? Help me welcome all of our first time guests, both here in the room, as well as those of you online. So glad to have you worshiping with us. Hey, before we get into the message, uh, two things, one of which you haven't heard about because it's new and it's happening so quick. This is really the only way we can get it to you. We've got a friend of mine who is uh, from the other side of the world. He uh, texted me this week and asked if we could help out. He's actually one of our global outreach partners that we work with. And the situation that he's facing right now is he has 159 women and children in a shelter uh, that they have helped come out of the Ukrainian conflict and, and find a place to live. And so the temperatures are changing there. And uh, their circumstances are difficult. They, they aren't prepared for what they're facing. And so these women and children need coats and boots. And he said, does your church take up an offering or do things for people who need stuff? And I said, well, we do. Uh, but, you know, we've kind of got all that planned. And so what we decided is just to come and say, hey, here's an opportunity for you. And so right now they're going to put on the screen uh, the word coats and our texting number. If you would like to help out, it's going to cost about $55 per person, which I think uh, times 159 is a little below $9,000 for us to be able to help if we can do any of that. So if that's on your heart. Simply right now, text coach to the number on the screen. You can give in increments of 55 or any other number uh, that God puts on your heart. And let's see if we can help some women and children on the other side of the world uh, not live in Transnistria and Moldova right now, freezing cold. Amen, you guys? Good. All right, second thing. First step is right after our third service today. If you're online, you need a link to join us, so text first step to the number on the screen. If you are here in the building, would love to be able to meet you personally, talk with you about who we are, what we do, why we do it. We've got free food and free childcare, so we have solved all your problems, and there you go. Everybody good? Cool. Well, I'm excited to preach because I, I missed a week. Whenever I take a week off, I come back twice as excited as I usually am. And uh, if you were here Thanksgiving weekend, or you can tell from behind me uh, that we're doing a series called Songs. It's a short little series we're doing in between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And the whole idea behind this is to, to talk about what the songs that we are singing mean to us and the idea that they should actually move us. I learned something very unique about songs when I was in college. I was a music major in college, and so I made a mistake as a freshman that I didn't even know was a mistake. And I went to my piano teacher and I said, I would like to learn to play this song. You would think that I had said the word bomb in an airport. I had committed a sin I did not know was a sin. But he responded to me with, that is not a song. I'm sorry. What is it? It's a piece. You can laugh. I wanted to laugh, but the man is grading me, and it's a one-on-one -on -one situation, so I'm like, okay. You see, what I learned in that moment that I had never known is a song is a very unique thing. A song is a piece of music with words that you sing. If you don't have words that you sing, it is no longer a song. It is just a piece. So when a piano player, I was a piano player, sits down to just play some music, they're playing a piece of music, and apparently they are highly offended if you call it a song, because that's what singers do and pianists do a piece of music. I don't know, I just ran into the arrogance of a piano player at the moment, I guess. But anyway, <laughs> the point to that and the reason I share that story with you is because that means songs are powerful, because songs combine two very powerful things. The first one is the power of music, and since... Obviously, I've dedicated a good part of my life to being a musician. I think that music is very powerful. If you ever think about trying to watch TV or listen to a movie, somebody in your house has gone to sleep, and so you have to turn the volume down. And it gets to a really intense part of the, the movie, but you don't hear the music. You're missing out 
on the power that that brings. And if you add to the power of music, and we see it in Scripture as well, right? The, the idea that we worship God with, with lyres and harps and flutes, and there's music. And we didn't come up with this. This is God's idea. So there really is a power to music. It moves us. And if we combine the power of music with the power of words, think what the power of words can do. Do you realize that words alone have started wars? Words alone have ended wars? Think about what we can do if we bring together the power of music and the power of words and we get a song, what songs are able to do. Songs move us to smile. I mean, how many times you might not even be in a good mood and on the radio, if you ever listen to the radio anymore, it, it, the song, Don't Worry, Be Happy comes on. Suddenly you're smiling because it just makes you feel that way. Songs move us to be happy. Songs move us to cry. Songs move us to patriotism. Songs move us to worship. And think about that, because that really brings up a good point. If songs can move humans generally, how much more should worship songs move Christians? The idea behind this series is, is for us to learn to take what we're singing seriously enough to reflect on it. That what if, what if I couldn't get up here and preach? You know, that actually happened one time in the Bible. They were dedicating the temple. The priests couldn't even perform their duties because the anointing as they worshiped God was so strong. What if... Just during the singing, God showed up in such a powerful way. Would we be moved and convicted and challenged simply by the words we're singing? And that really does bring up a question because many times as we're singing songs, if we're going to be honest, we're kind of rushing in from the parking lot. We've missed the first song altogether. And then the first part of the second song, we're checking our kids in and we're getting our coffee and we come in and we suddenly just start looking at the wall and mouthing along the words with the crowd that everybody else is doing. I want to ask you, do you ever actually stop and think about what you're saying? And then a real question, don't raise your hand for this one. How many times as we're singing songs in worship and everyone is maybe raising their hands or something and you're thinking, how is that person raising their hands to this? I don't know that I even agree with it. How many times do you struggle to actually feel what you're singing? You know, sometimes we, there is a struggle and the difficulty is because we know we're singing it we believe it, but we don't feel it yet. And it's important in those moments that we continue to do that. That's called singing and worshiping by faith. It's important that we, we do something in faith. We make a declaration hoping that someday our feelings catch up with what we know to be true about God. It is okay that sometimes we stand here and sing in faith. But you know, there are times that we sing absolute contradictions to our life. And so what we're doing for this series is we're taking one of our worship songs each week, and we're just going to look at that and where it comes out of the Bible and, and just to say, can we stop and reflect on that? The song we just sang is actually called Make Room. You don't need to know that, but uh, titles, I don't know, they're all whatever. I never remember the title of whichever song we're doing, and it seems like every worship song has the same title anyway. There's only so many ways to say glorify God. Which version of glorify God? You know, that kind of thing. So don't worry about the title. But the point is what we're saying when we sing this song because this song is actually a declaration of surrender. And so we were singing words like this, here is where I lay it down. Every burden, every crown. Think about that. Songs tend to rhyme as well if y'all didn't know that. Here's where I lay it down. Every burden, meaning the things that I carry, 
the weights that I carry that I should not carry that get in the way of God moving in my life. Here's where I lay it down, every crown. Crowns are things that we do that make much of us, where we're making much of us and it gets in the way of us making much of God. So we're saying, here's where I lay it down. Here's where I lay down every lie, everything that I believe, everything that the world has taught me that God, it's not true about you or maybe even myself. Here's where I lay it down. And we get to the ultimate point of the song, I will make room for you to do whatever you want to. Have y'all ever thought about what you're actually saying to God when you say that? God, I'll make room for you to do whatever you want to. And then about the middle of the day on Tuesday, your life has been turned completely upside down. Everything is going crazy. You have lost control of everything. And you go, what is going on, God? What is happening? And his response is, oh, I was just doing what you sang Sunday. I took your invitation sincerely. I'm sorry. You're like, wait a minute, what do you think you're doing? You can't do these things in my life without my permission, without me agreeing to what's going on. I didn't ask for this. I mean, you're acting like a God or something. What is this? I'll make room for you, the creator of the universe, to do anything you want in my life. Have you thought about the power of those words? Now, the truth is, I don't know the person that wrote this song. I've never met them. And so I don't know the answer to the question that if they were reading through scripture and they came across a passage that would be the passage that they would say, that made me write that song. I don't know what it is. So I had to answer the question, if I were writing this song, what would be the one passage above anything else in the Bible that would compel me to write a song that says, here's my surrender. I lay it all down. You get to do whatever you want to. For me, It's a statement out of Luke chapter nine. If you've got your Bibles, I'm gonna invite you to turn with me because it's our main passage for today. And we're gonna be at verse 23 of, of, of this Luke chapter nine. And it's looking at one statement by Jesus. And let me set the stage for you first before I show it to you. Jesus has been doing a lot of amazing things that has gathered crowds and well, has made a lot of crowds like him to tell you the truth. He's done some miracles. He's healed some people. The most recent thing he did right before this statement, he had just fed 5,000 men which we believe means there were about 20,000 people in the crowd. So we've got a lot of people that are gathering around him. Maybe some of them just want more free food. Who knows? Some of them want to see more healing. Some of them want to see more miracles. He actually took a little moment. He turned to his disciples and said, who do the people say that I am? And they had just acknowledged, well, they say this, but we believe you're the Messiah. We believe you're the son of God. We believe you're the Christ. And then he explains to them, I'm going to have to die. They're a little confused. And he turns back to the crowd at this moment because he realizes there's a lot of people that do just want to see another miracle. They just, they're there for the show. And here's what he says to the crowd. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will actually save it. If you've grown up in church, this is such an incredibly famous passage that you've probably heard it before. You probably know it. You could almost quote it with me. But I think so few people understand the depth of what it would mean to actually apply this to our lives. And that's, that's my goal. It's a rather audacious goal today is to try to make this passage real to us. 
So let's start by going back in time a little bit and see if we can put ourselves in their place. When Jesus looked at this crowd of people, mostly Jewish people that are following him, he's Jewish, they're in the nation of Israel, and and he looks at him and says, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be my disciple, because there's a lot of you, and I'm going to have to draw a line in the sand and decide which ones of you are actually going to be different. Who's going to be my disciple? You're going to need to take up your cross and follow me. You need to understand how baffling a statement this was, if not even offensive. You see, this picture of crucifixion, for you and me, we're like, oh, we know what he's talking about. Jesus died on the cross. It makes sense that Jesus would tell you and me to take up our cross. But although they would see what a crucifixion was and they knew it, it was all around them. The Roman government would crucify criminals on a cross. They had seen it done. The idea that Jesus is using this image makes no sense to them. I can imagine them even pushing back. Wait a minute, Jesus. Crucifixion is only done by government decree against criminals. Jewish people don't crucify. This is not what we do. It's what our oppressors do. It's what the Romans do. The Romans do that to criminals. And I mean, you're a Jewish rabbi. I realize you've ticked off a few religious leaders, but the picture of of death on the cross, it doesn't even make sense. How could you, an innocent Jewish man, end up, surely you're not talking about you. And why would you give us such a repulsive picture that we should want to be like a criminal condemned to death? I mean, you're, we're following you. You're teaching us the ways of God. You're a rabbi. We came to you to be more godly, and you're giving us a picture of being killed as a criminal by an oppressive government. This makes no sense. And the truth is, most of what Jesus said made no sense at the time. Most of what Jesus said required them later to go, you remember when Jesus said that? There are so many things he said that only made sense in hindsight. So now that we understand that a little bit, what we need to do is to kind of go back. We can now look backwards. We understand it. Now you can imagine them after Jesus has been crucified going, I know what he meant. Wow, that was a serious statement. Because for us to understand the full meaning, let me give you the picture. We know that people were crucified on a cross, nailed to a cross, and we often just think that the cross was already there like this, but it actually wasn't. There was only the vertical portion in the ground. And so what they would do is they would bring the horizontal portion called the cross beam. And it was very rough cut. They didn't have the nice power saws and tools that we have today. So it was a very rough and splintery beam that weighed about 75 pounds. And they would bring it to the criminal at the jail. And so as they brought them out for crucifixion, they would bring them out of the jail, surrounded in a little box of soldiers so that no one could kill them early, as well as so that they couldn't escape. Because they wanted to make sure this death was as as agonizing as possible. And so they kept the criminals from being beaten by an angry person in the crowd, right? I mean, they're criminals. They've done something wrong. Somebody out there hates them. And so they would then have two soldiers pick up this 75-pound beam, this rough beam, and they would lay it up on their shoulders, and then the criminal with the weight of this beam would begin to walk to their place of execution, carrying the very beam that they will have spikes driven through their wrist into that beam. They are 
They are carrying the very instrument of their death to the place of their death. So when Jesus says, take up your cross, he means lay down your life. Because the only people who take up their cross are dead men walking. Anyone who takes up their cross knows that every step they're about to take will be different from any step they've ever taken before. Although they're going to walk from the jail to their place of execution down the street, they've walked many times possibly, past shops that they've seen, with people in the crowd that they know, this trip will be different. Now that they've taken up their cross, they won't stop to have certain conversations they used to have. They won't visit certain businesses they used to visit. They won't walk with their head held high. They wouldn't even walk at the same speed because now they're carrying a 75-pound beam. And in Jesus' case, he's been beaten and scourged. You can just imagine what the splinters in the wood are doing as he carries the 75 pounds. And so they, they understood, if I, if I take up my cross, I'm acknowledging my life is over. And that's interesting because they're not yet dead. But the life they lived is behind them. It's no longer theirs. That they are going to continue to walk upon the earth until they reach the moment where they leave the earth. But in between this moment of picking up my cross and my death, I'm a dead man walking. I don't live for myself. I don't get to do anything the way I used to do it. Everything has changed. If I pick up my cross, I'm acknowledging I'm dead. And I'm even going to participate in the process by carrying that. When Jesus says, take up your cross, they all understood after the fact. That's serious. It means I'm still living on the earth. I'm still going to go about what I've been doing, but I'm no longer going to do it the way I used to do it. I don't get choices. Just as that criminal is going to be dictated by the weight of the crossbeam that they're carrying and dictated by the movement of the soldiers who would whip them and yell at them and, and prod them and force them to walk forward, we're being compelled by something else as well. So if we could, now let's go back and hear Jesus say it again. And now we've got a different image. But before we do, I just want to make one thing very, very clear for you and me today, as well as honestly for almost everyone Jesus was talking to, this was not gonna be a physical death. And as Jesus tells you today, as you read in your Bible, Luke chapter nine, it's, it's not a physical death for the gospel. It is very possible that some of you, maybe, are gonna be called to go and preach the gospel in hostile parts of the world, and then you're gonna be a martyr. It could be true for you. It was true for a few that he was speaking to, but for most people he was speaking to, and for most of us today, this is not a physical death, but don't let that miss, make you miss the point. It's a very real death. Something is literally dying, and it is your kingship of your life. Your kingship is dying when you take up your cross, if you choose to take up your cross. So here's what Jesus said now with all of that in mind. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And the idea of denying ourselves, there's two things that we lose. The first one is control and the second one is desires. We have to say no to control and desires. You see, the idea of denying myself means I give up control. I'm no longer king over this. 
Matter of fact, virtually every war that's ever been fought in human history is because two kings have fought over one territory. And the truth is most every problem that we have in our lives is because there's a fight for control. Before we surrender to God, there's a fight between us and the devil. Sometimes we feel like he's winning, right? And then when we give our lives to God, we say, Jesus, I want you to be my king. But, well, sometimes fulfilling those words are difficult, aren't they? And we say, Jesus, take your place on the throne of my life. But then, then we kind of struggle with doing things our way once again, as Kent was talking about during communion. But the second idea of denying myself means that what I want, my goals and my wants for life, I have to lay those down when they're different from God's. And don't misunderstand what I just said. It's very important. It's not wrong to have goals and wants. The problem is when they're different from God's. I hope you have goals for your life. I hope you want things in your life. I, I, I hope that you have things that you plan to do because you really do need to accomplish something with your life. A lot of people would love it if you accomplished something with your life. Your boss would love it. Your spouse would love it. Your children would love it. Please accomplish something with your life. Get a job. Get married. Take a vacation. Pay some bills. Decide to get a promotion. It's okay to have goals and wants. The problem is not having goals and wants. The problem is when your goals and wants come before what God wants. And as I was preparing this message, I noticed something, truthfully, I'd never noticed before. And I'm going to say something in a minute. It's going to sound heretical. Give me a minute to explain it before anybody gets up and starts throwing things at me. But there was one time, and as best we can tell in Scripture, only one time, but there was one time that Jesus wanted something different from the Father. And this is where he models for us the idea of denying ourselves because he did it. You see, matter of fact, it was just as what Jesus is talking about was becoming a reality for him. When he was about to face death on a cross, he went and he talked to his father. Here's what it says in Matthew 26. He fell on his face and he prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my want. I have a want. Not my will, but your will be done. And I know that baffles us because we know that the Father and the Son are one. Jesus made that point over and over again. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I only do what I see the Father doing. I say what I hear the Father saying. And so it's like, wait a minute, how could Jesus want something different? Well, because Jesus was fully God and fully man, and the man part of him had watched the crucifixion. The man part of him knew what his body was about to go through and what he was going to feel. What he did want was the, the will of the Father to be carried about, out. And so he's saying, look, Dad, I, I want to rescue your, your lost people. I want to make right what has been made wrong. I want to, to remove sin and, and extinguish death. I want to do what you sent me here to do. It, it just if, if there's a way to do it without me dying on the cross, please, if, if there's a way, I still want that. But as we know, the Father's response is, no, there's, there's no other way. And so Jesus says, not my way, but yours. And he models for you and me what it means to deny ourselves. As Jesus says, look, do what I did. He goes on to say, and take up his cross. Let him deny himself and take up his cross. And again, I've already preached this, I hope, clearly enough, but you didn't take up your cross until 
you were condemned to death. You didn't take up a cross and then try to go about your normal life. And, and unfortunately for you and me, way too often, we just say a prayer in church. You know, we get all emotional. We want to be forgiven for our sins. We want to go to heaven. And, and we're, we're kind of riding a high and knowing that God loves us. And we don't realize we're taking up our cross, but we're not willing to change how we live. And that's a process that we have to learn over time. But when we pick up our cross, we're actually acknowledging my life on earth is done. What I used to live for, the way I used to live, it, it, it's changing. Everything is different. After all, if I'm going to live from this point forward, just as the, the criminal, every step between the jail and the time they were crucified, for you and me, every step between when we say, Jesus, would you be my king? Would you be my Lord and Savior? Would you forgive me of my sins? Every step from that until the day we leave earth, as Ken told us, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. It's, it's not me. The me you used to know, well, that's, that's just changed. I don't talk the way I used to talk. I don't do some of the things I used to do. I don't treat people the way I used to treat them. I don't think the way I used to think. Everything changes because we have taken up our cross. Then he continues and says that we take up our cross daily. Look, this is the struggle. If, if I were able to do something that's probably never been done, and preach the world's greatest sermon outside of Jesus, and truly get every single person listening online and in this room, every single person, not missing one, to say, Jimmy, I want this. I want to do this. I want to give everything to God. I want to lay down my life. I want to, to pick up my cross. I want to make any sacrifice necessary. If I could get every single one of you to that same place, you'd have to do it again tomorrow. And you'll have to do it again the day after that because we love things in this world. And today you lay it down, but tomorrow you get up and you're still in love with something. You've got to lay that back down. Tomorrow, once again, you'll have to get up and put heaven before earth. You may, do, you may make an A-plus today, everybody, but tomorrow, once again, you're going to have to put God before you and me. It's daily. We don't take up our cross only once. For that criminal, they didn't take up their cross, take one step and put it back down. They carried that cross every single step until they left earth. So Jesus says, take up his cross daily and will follow me. Follow me. I died on the cross, even though it's not what I wanted. I asked my father if there's any other way, but there wasn't. So I did what I didn't want. I did what my father wanted. So follow me. Do what I did. Die like I did. Follow me. These are strong words. Do you guys realize sometimes we don't need a sermon if we let the song that we're singing move us? And so that brings us back to the song and really the point of laying down our lives, taking up our cross. Because there's actually a part of the song where we're inviting God. If there's anything that's in the way, we invite God to mess up our lives. Did you, did you realize when you're singing that song, you are actively inviting God to mess up your life? Has anybody realized that? We sing this part. I mean, these are dangerous words, but we sing this thing that says, shake up the ground of my tradition. Break down the walls of my religion. For one reason only, God, your way is better. Shake up my ways, break down my ways, because your way is better. Them's fighting words as we say here in the South. 
What are we actually meaning? What are we saying to God when we, when we say, what, God, would you shake up the ground of my tradition? When you hear the word tradition, probably what comes to mind is what you do for Thanksgiving dinner or how you celebrate Christmas. It, it goes way beyond that. The word tradition is what we do as a normal way of living. It is our way of going about life that we really don't even think about. We just do. It is who we are. It is what we've done. It's what I do, the way I've always done it, the way I'm going to do it, even without thinking if I should ask a question. And so what we're actually telling God to do is, hey, maybe there's something about how I live, how I wake up every day that needs to change. Maybe there's something about what I think is acceptable to watch. Maybe there's something that I think is okay with, with the way that I look on the internet. Maybe there's something that is okay. It's just my normal life to hang out with that person. Maybe there is something about my way, but your way is better. You can shake up everything in my life that you want to, God. Woo! You say, break down the walls of my religion. You see, religion is someone's approach to God. We're saying, God, I want you to break down any walls that get in the way of me approaching you. And we all have an approach to God, even if you're a Christian or not. And the truth is, even, even if you are a Christian, even if you'd say, yes, I, I made Jesus my Lord and Savior at some point in my life, we all have a different approach to God. There are some who are not Christians. They have an approach to God that is, I don't care if he's even there. Some have an approach to God that says, I don't need to approach him. I don't believe in him. But then the world, statistically, is filled with people who believe there is a God and try to figure out an approach to him. And you know what is interesting to me as a pastor? I've, I've talked to people who say they're Christians. And, and ask them, are you going to heaven? And this is baffling because I'm talking to Christians and almost never, almost never have I gotten the answer yes or no. If I were talking to someone who's not a believer, they may say no, but they usually don't say that. And if I'm talking to a Christian, they should be able to say absolutely yes, but they usually don't say that. Even if I'm talking to Christians, the answers I usually get are, well, man, I hope so. I, I think, maybe. I mean, I said a prayer with the pastor one time. I mean, I, I'm, well, that's my, my hope. And so our approach to God is not waking up and holding our head high and saying, Father, thank you that you died for me and you love me. Woo, I can't wait to see you. But we wake up every day and go, okay, let me try to be good enough today. God, let me see if I can get you to like me a little bit. And our approach to God is what Brandon was talking about in part one. He did the song talking about all to him I owe. Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. Do you get that? Jesus paid it all. He carried your cross beam you will never carry. He was nailed to your cross you will never be nailed to. He gave you his righteousness. When the father looks down, he sees Jesus. He sees his righteousness on you. That means we don't need to have an approach to God that says, God, I hope you like me. God loves you. He sent his son to die for you. He sees his son when he looks at you. And so we don't need to keep trying to have some approach to God that says, well, let me be better and let me work harder and let me do this. Let me give more. Let me serve more. Let me make sure I never miss a Sunday in church. For many of us, our religion is works. I'm saying, God, would you break that down? 
And he begins to mess with how you connect with him. What he's trying to do is bring you to a place that you know you are loved by your father in heaven. And that means you have to go through a journey of, of all the junk, the things you think about him, the things you think about yourself that tell you you're not good enough, all the lies that the enemy has put into your life. And the truth is when most of us are singing, when most of us are singing, God break down the walls of my religion This is what God's messing with in your life. You see, this is God's revelation of himself to us. The truth is, without this, we have nothing. There's actually a passage in here. It's in Romans chapter 1 that says that all of mankind, all of creation can look at the heavens and look at the world around and tell there is a God. But if you want to know anything about that God, you need this. Because it's only in here that that God says, I am gracious slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. It's only in here that he says, I love you so much, I sent my son to die for you. It's only in here that he says, whoever believes in me. Without this, we have nothing. And the problem is this has become the target for our world today. And so for many of us, as we try to figure out our religion, our approach to God. We're struggling because our approach to God is hindered by a wall that says, I can't, I can't get along with all this, God. There's stuff in here I don't like. There's stuff in here that says, I've got to change how I live. Oh, really? Your way is better. Or not. Those are the words that we're saying to God. Break down any wall any perception I have of this, any refusal to surrender to this that is hindering my approach to you because your way is better. Because your way is better. And we ultimately find ourselves singing, so this is where I lay it down. This is my surrender. I grew up going to church, as I've told you before, two to three times a week, often. Go to Presbyterian church in the morning, Baptist church on Sunday night. And went to a youth group on Wednesdays. Did a lot of church. But it wasn't until I was 16 years old, funny enough, not in church, that I gave my life to Jesus. I was at a school retreat. And at the very moment that I gave my life to Jesus, I knew that I was called to be a pastor. And the problem with that is that is not what I wanted to do. That was not my life plan. I had wanted to be a surgeon because I wanted to be rich and revered. Very, very simple, rich and revered. That was it. Truthfully, I was 16 years old. I knew where I was going to college. I knew where I was going to med school. If I got in, I had my plans. I also knew the Mercedes that I was going to have. Now I realize at this point, it'd be a very old Mercedes. I'd have a newer one. But I had a picture of one of those like late 80s, 500 SELs, the little convertible to y'all. Anyway, if you know what I'm talking about. I knew what I wanted for my life. And God said, this is what I have for you. And crazy enough, I just said, okay. No one had ever preached this to me. I didn't have any understanding. All I knew was, well, if I just picked up my cross, life is different now. Everything has changed now. So when he said, I want you to be a pastor, I'm like, okay. I don't know what that means. Turns out I'm not very pastoral, but that's why we have Mike Salazar and Kent Fancher.
God began to do other things in my life. I wanted to get as far from South Carolina as I ever could. I grew up here in South Carolina. I went to an out-of-state college. I bought a one-way plane ticket after graduation, moved halfway around the world. I married an East European. I thought, woo, I'm safe. Look where I am. <laughs> because God said, I want you to go back. Literally, I had someone declare a word from God over me. It's out of the book of Acts. It says, I've rescued you from your people to send you to your people. And I said, okay. This is my surrender. I don't post things on social media that I want to. Truth is, I think the majority of humans in this world are very, very stupid. And I would love to say some things to them. <laughs> but I don't because it would hinder my ability to make much of Jesus. I don't want anything to get in the way of that. And so if you ever look at my Facebook page, you're only going to see kids' birthdays. That's it. I've got a lot that I want to say that I don't say, and it's not just so that it doesn't hinder what I do on this stage, it's so that it doesn't hinder the conversation I have in my driveway with my next door neighbor. You see, I say no to what I want whenever God deserves better. This is my surrender. My life is my surrender. I don't say that to brag. I say that hopefully to inspire as I leave you with this challenging question. What is your surrender? What do you need to lay down? Is it burdens that are so heavy that you can't connect with God? Maybe unforgiveness. You know, I think one of the heaviest burdens that we carry as Christians is unforgiveness. Maybe it's worry. Those are the two heaviest burdens I see all of humanity carry. You see, worry is all about our concern and God's control, and we don't trust him to control. And well, there's not a lot of room for God if it's filled with our lack of trust for God. What do you need to surrender? Do you need to surrender your social media big mouth? Do you need to surrender how you treat that person in your family? Do you need to surrender your idea of your sexuality? Do you need to surrender something that you don't want to do to what God says to do? Do you need to surrender your opinion when his opinion of his word is, my word is truth, it is perfect? What do you need to surrender to pick up your cross and to become a dead man walking that Jesus can live through to change this world? If I could get the worship team to come out and join us, what we're going to do to end today is sing back through this song. But this time I hope as we're singing that we'll be singing it at a level where we're processing those words and we're challenging ourselves. And look, I give you permission to sing by faith, meaning you know you're not quite there, but you're gonna declare that you want to get there. I also give you permission to maybe not even sing the words. Say, God, I need your help with that word. God, I need you to come and touch me right now. Would you all stand to your feet? Chelsea's gonna lead us.
So I want to pray for you. Would you mind, if you would, raise your hand and say, I want to do this, but it's hard. I want this to be me. God, you see every hand in this room. You see every hand in every living room watching online that's saying, God, we want, we want to just lay everything down about our ways of living. We want to, to put everything aside to do it your way and only your way. But this is hard. We're broken. We've been raised in this world and we just need your help. So God, I pray for every person, every hand raised, that you would come. You would move in your, our lives by your power. Your grace would be poured out that we could say it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. If you just stay in a place of prayer, you can put those hands down. I want to speak to those who have never made Jesus their king. You see, the truth is Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, and then he died on the cross, a cross that you and I deserved. Because there's something in all of our lives that's imperfect. It's called sin. But when he died as a perfect substitute for you and me, his blood was able to pay for your sins and mine. And when he was raised from the dead, that power also promises you eternal life. We call it the free gift of salvation. If you've never made the exchange of the life you've been living with you as your own king, for the one that Jesus has for you, forgiven and eternal, I want to help you do that right now. Wherever you are, would you simply say something like this to yourself and to God? Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died for me. And from this day forward, I choose to live for you. I thank you that you love me thank you that I'm forgiven. And now my prayer, would you fill me with your spirit and give me a life of great meaning in your kingdom? Amen. Would you all help me celebrate with them, everybody?